This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is In Our Time from BBC Radio 4, and this is one of more than a thousand episodes you can find on BBC Sounds and on our website. If you scroll down the page for this edition, you find a reading list to go with it. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. For much of the medieval period, the Hanseatic League, or Hansa, dominated trade around the Baltic and the North Sea, with bases from London to Bruges, Bergen to Novgorod. Hansa merchants gained privileges from the growing cities and princes, such as monopolies and tax breaks, for bringing them goods like timber, fur and fish from distant lands. The Hansa became hugely powerful and influential, funding wars and waging wars, before eventually losing out to competition, stronger nation-states and the burgeoning Atlantic trade. With me to discuss the Hanseatic League, or Hansa, are Justina Verbs Merozevich, Associate Professor of Medieval History at the University of Amsterdam, Georg Christ, Senior Lecturer in Medieval and Early Modern History at the University of Manchester, and Sheila Ogilvy, Chichili Professor of Economic History at All Souls College, University of Oxford. Sheila Ogilvy, when and why did the Hanseatic League come into being? That was a question that puzzled people even at the time. Medieval Londoners called the German Hansa a crocodile because it showed only its head and jaw while the rest of the body remained concealed beneath the water. And this was partly because nobody knew how big the Hansa was or where it had come from. There wasn't a specific starting point. It didn't have a founding charter. It didn't have a treaty. It didn't have an agreement. It emerged in the, or it emerges for us in the documents in the middle of the 12th century when merchants from North German cities and some Dutch cities started trading abroad and they agreed to work together to get privileges from foreign rulers. And then it evolved into a clearer organization in the 14th century when the town councils of the Hanseatic cities got involved. But it still remained a network, a loose network of merchants, not of cities. And the first attempt to set up a town league among the Hanseatic cities didn't take place until the 1550s, which was 400 years after the Hansa began. Um, by that time, the Hansa was stagnating commercially and the League plan didn't really work out. And yet the Hanseatic parliaments, the diets, as they were called, continued to be held until 1669, although in the end, hardly anyone was attending. So there, this very mysterious crocodile of a trading organization emerged organically. It survived for almost 500 years, but it remained just as mysterious in the 17th century as it had been in the 12th century. Thank you. What role did the Hanseatic League play in the development of North European and Baltic trade? 
I think we can think about that question in two phases. There was a first phase between about 1150 and maybe the Black Death around 1350, when it's a phase of explosive economic growth in Europe. Um, You have fast population growth. You've got greater urbanization in Northwest Europe, whereas previously most of the urbanization had been in the south along the Mediterranean. Uh, And the Baltics started being included in European trade. But my feeling is that the Hansa was a symptom rather than a cause of this economic growth. Um, it was the individual merchants of many different Northwest European towns that made this happen, not the Hansa in particular. The merchants of the Hansa were major players in that trade, but they weren't exclusive players. So there were always so-called interlopers, or at least the Hansa called them interlopers, outsiders who competed with Hansa merchants and competed so seriously that the Hansa was constantly attacking them and trying to keep them out of the North Sea and Baltic trade. So you have Dutch merchants, Flemish merchants, Scandinavians, non-Hanseatic German merchants, English, Scottish merchants. They were also really active in the Northern European and and Baltic trade in this period. And they were only gradually and partially excluded by Hansa political privileges and actually the violence, which, as we'll see, that the Hansa exerted. Um, I was just going to say that after the Black Death, after 1350, there was a different phase, I think, in the contribution of the Hansa to Northern European and Baltic trade, because after 1350, the Hansa became increasingly violent and restrictive. For a couple of centuries previously, it had opened up new trading routes to Russia and Scandinavia. After 1350, it started trying to use its privileges from rulers to prevent other merchants from participating. It tried to act as a cartel. And I think during that phase, it increasingly had a bad effect on Northwest European trade. What was driving this growth? There were a lot of primary products in Northwest Europe, especially in Scandinavia and in Russia. So there were furs, there was there was tar, there was pitch, there was amber collected along the Baltic. There were stockfish, cod, and herring, which were really important. You wouldn't think fish were an important trading good, but they were needed in a Catholic era when people had to eat fish on certain days. And so the Hansa and the Northwest European merchants were providing these primary products and trading with the South European merchants who were in turn trading with the Middle East for spices and and sort of Middle Eastern luxury products. Thank you. Uh Georg Christ, um, to what extent was the Hanseatic League, well, to what extent was it a league? And we, is it, was it basically German or German? Can you tell us a little bit more about what this means, the league? Yes, that's uh, very much debated to which extent uh, it was a league um, because there were different types of Hansas, if you want. Basically, Hansa just means a bunch of people, an association, a group. And while it is quite easy to pinpoint that traveling merchants or to understand why traveling merchants would form groups to travel, to be safer, to help each other, and why they would form groups when they find themselves in a foreign place, such as Novgorod or London, where they maybe don't understand the language are um, faced with extortions and so on, is quite clear. What is not so clear, and that brings us back to the League, the Hanseatic League, why would cities um, form a Hansa? Can cities be a group of 
people? Not really. I mean, cities are associations in and of uh, themselves. But why would they form together and form an association? And did they really? And that is very much contested. But now you asked also about the Germanicness or sort of the German identity of the Hansa. In one privilege, we find the formulation. This, these privileges are for the merchants of the Roman Empire, of German tongue, from whatever cities they may hail. So, it's a multi-layered identity. They're still claiming association with the Roman Empire. Yes, that is very important. With the 12th century. Absolutely. All the way through to the early modern period, the association with the Holy Roman Empire is absolutely crucial, especially for this ephemeral or contested notion of Hanseatic League. Crucial in the sense that, say, Lübeck, when they acted on behalf of their merchants or uh, different Hansas, they claim to act on behalf of the empire because the empire really was responsible of sort of protecting the interests of and rights of merchants, the right to move freely, the right to trade freely, the right to be protected in their lives and in their goods. That is basically a task for the emperor uh, to ensure that. But because the emperor is far away, the emperor is weak, cities take over. Now, back to the Germanicness. Um, so after the belonging to the empire, yes, um, the belonging to some sort of Germanitas or Germanness was important. But what kind of a German is intended here? It is not just German. It was a, a very specific kind of German, both linguistically and geographically. We are talking of low German here. So the Hansa as a whole is an association of associations of merchants who share this low German language. Is it always their first language? Not necessarily. Is it their only language? In many cases, certainly not. We have Hanseatic merchants uh, who speak Frisian, uh, who are from Gotland, so they speak German, but also Gutnisch, and so on and so forth. So there is a culture of multilingualism. Can you give us an example of how, say, Lübeck benefited from the Hansa? Lübeck uh, benefited from the Hansa because, as a city of their own, they could try to claim to act on behalf of their merchants and to improve their privileges, improve their status and their infrastructure abroad. But they were not a, they were not a huge city, so Lübeck was limited in its resources. So by claiming to act, on the one hand, as I said, on behalf of the empire, on the other hand, to act on behalf of the entire Hanse, i.e. this big group of merchants who share this low German uh, language and culture, they of course had much more clout. What was their muscle? What did they threaten? Why were they feared? Trade generates income and wealth. Uh, so these Hanseatic cities or trading cities, they had the financial resources that enabled them to wage uh, wars, uh, for instance, to hire mercenaries, to hire corsairs, or you could call them pirates, uh, entrepreneurs of violence or specialists of violence at sea. Also, because of their trade, they had fleets. Of course, these were fleets of merchantmen, but these fleets could be reconverted to navies so mil for military purposes. Thank you very much. Justina, where does the term league 
come in, does it, what significance does it have in the Asiatic League? It's not really a league, so it's, it's more a kind of shortcut that we use, especially in English. But it's uh, become a term which is quite obsolete in other languages, in Scandinavian languages, in Dutch and uh, Polish. So we've moved away from it to, a, well, more perhaps the fuzzy term Hansa or Hansa, but which kind of indicates more that it was a phenomenon in its own kind. So what were the visible signs of the Hansa during the time it operated? How did one Hansa ship know another ship was a Hansa ship? So there were no visible unifying signs. So there was not one Hanseatic flag, for instance, or a seal, or until late in the 16th century, uh, not one representative for the whole of the organization. It was the collectivity. For instance, when they were signing treaties, they were attaching seals of individual cities. So it was the togetherness, you could say, which signaled the Hansa and the might of this group of uh, cities and uh, merchants. The Hansa, you could say, was a layer in the urban, medieval urban identity. It was not uh, something all-encompassing. It was not intended to, to work in such a way. But it was a fact that those cities worked together. And on the other hand, they did have shared institutions so settlements abroad, for instance, in London, Bruges, Novgorod, Bergen and uh, Norway. So there you had buildings, warehouses, dwellings, chapels and sometimes uh, uh, taverns. In, in London, it, it was really a, a whole compound. So these were visible signs of an organization where people coming from various cities worked and lived together. So in Kings Lynn, we still have a warehouse of Hanseatic merchants. So these were the, the visible signs. And also, as uh, Sheila mentioned, the um, diets, the meetings of the Hansa, which sometimes uh, happened every year, sometimes with some breaks, mostly in Lübeck. So the representatives of cities came together for several weeks, debating issues, uh, regulations, conflicts, uh, drafting privileges the way they would like them to, uh, to be, discussing all kinds of matters, but also going to church together, drinking, having meals, being present in the city, being visible. So, yeah, indeed a crocodile, but people were very well aware that there were more parts and that they were connected and potentially dangerous. So did they go to a city to make it simple? Was it the mixture of a promise and a threat as clear as that? I think the, the way it grew, it was more creating opportunities, which were there for both sides, mostly, obviously, the elites. Uh, what we do see is uh, violence or threats of violence when privileges and agreements which have been made with city councils or rulers were not lived up to. How, Sheila, how was this viewed? Was it viewed as legitimate trade? I think both rulers and other merchants and ordinary people regarded the Hansa with mingled respect and fear. I think they were seen as perfectly legitimate. Most medieval trade was organized, or much medieval trade was organized by merchant guilds or merchant Hansas, in fact. this The German Hansa was just the biggest uh, um, and most crocodile-like of all of the merchant Hansas in Europe. But I think rulers and other merchants and towns regarded the Hansa with a combination of respect and fear. Respect because the German Hansa brought together a large group of merchants in the places where it traded. It was financially strong, so it could put pressure on rulers and towns by offering them bribes and loans. 
in exchange for trading privileges. And in England, for instance, from 1299 onwards, the German Hansa were basically acting as credit bankers, lending a lot of money to the crown. And in 1327, Hansa loans helped Edward III to the throne and then aided him in fighting his wars in France. So in return for that, the English monarchs granted the German Hansa wool exporting privileges, tax cuts, rights to collect customs dues from other merchants. And that was a fairly typical deal between merchant guilds or the Hansa and, and rulers. So there was a respect side of things. It was a perfectly legitimate way of doing medieval trade. There was a fear side of things, because <coughs> if you didn't do what the Hansa wanted, it could deny you loans for your next war, it, or it could impose a trade embargo on your territory, which could choke off business and even cause famine. And there were some notorious embargoes when the German Hansa declared embargoes, for instance, against Norway in order to expand its trading privileges there. And it affected grain imports into Norway so seriously that famine broke out and the ruler capitulated and granted the Hansa better privileges. So there were a series of of that sort of embargo, which the German Hansa declared against Novgorod, against Bruges, against other places, if it didn't get what it asked. And sometimes it was just that the Hansa wanted better privileges than any other merchants, and they were willing to use blackmail and violence to get them. Yeah, so it was straightforward muscle when it came to it in many cases. Georg, uh, Christ, how much did the Hanseatic League look outside the North European trade and consider its opportunities in Africa and Asia. The Hanseatic uh, League, or the Hansa rather, or this um, web of Hanseatic connections uh, was very much focusing on Northern Europe, but that didn't mean that it was not connected to the wider world. It was very much uh, connected because this old world web or the sort of the economic uh, um, system that uh, connected Africa, Asia and Europe in the Middle Ages was a system of overlapping and interlocking networks. And this system uh, enabled goods to travel quite astonishing distances. Uh, think of Gear Falcon traveling from the icy north of Greenland all the way uh, to Mamluk, Egypt, uh, Cairo. And the Hanseatic League or the Hansa, Hanseatic merchants, they had their part in that. They controlled the transport indirectly from Greenland, certainly all the way to uh, Bergner, England, and then uh, to the Mediterranean, where the Venetian took over and brought it to Egypt. And there are many other examples, such as Chinese silk, making it all the way to Scandinavia through these interlocking networks of the Maritime Silk Road. So how was um, also ideas, if you want, and technologies? So the famous ship uh, of the Hansa merchants, the Koch, for instance, did make it into the Mediterranean. So not so much Hanseatic merchants, or not in great numbers, but their ships. They appeared in the Mediterranean, were slightly transformed, altered, and uh, in a way, were part of the ingredients technologically that powered European expansion over the Atlantic. Justina, can we be a little local now and um, mm -hmm. talk about it, the relationship of the Hansa with England, with London? On the one hand, um, London, England, was a very crucial market and a partner. 
because of the exchange of goods. So England famously was one of the major producers of textiles, woolens in the in the medieval period, and that was something that was very much coveted in, uh, for instance, the the Baltic uh, area. So it was exchanged against grain and furs and wax and uh, fish. So herring, stockfish, also coming from from Scandinavia, and also ships, timber. So there's really a kind of long history of commercial uh, interconnections, interest in each other's goods. Um, but at the same time, also, the, the English were key competitors. So they were called in the sources non-Hansards. They were really the emblematic non-Hansard, Butenhansen. So Hansards and the English met on the one hand in, in London, the major trading centre, obviously, but also in Boston and uh, King's Lynn. But the English also ventured to Hanseatic cities and settlements, so to the Low Countries, Bruges and, uh, and Antwerp, where they met uh, Hansards, went to uh, Scandinavia to buy fish, uh, and also to Prussian cities who were members uh, of the Hansards. So this exchange was actually more multi-level and, and, and on various grounds, and that's created also tensions because Hanseatic traders had more privileges in England than they had when they came to, let's say, Danzig, Gdańsk. So there, there was a lot of negotiation in, and also, well, at times wars, especially in the, in the 15th century. So uh, the 1470-74 English Hanseatic War was about rights and about ships taken and goods confiscated and uh, everything that kind of showed the tensions. But this history was was really long of their relations and the Hansards were, were aware well aware of it. So they were colonial merchants were granted rights in England in London already in the 12th century and they established really a settlement very early there. So there was a guild hall which grew into the compound which we know from 14th century sources and especially later ones as the steel yard. Could, so we, could we concentrate on the steel yard for a few moments? How did it operate? Yes, the steel yard was right where uh, nowadays Cannon Street Station is. So it was between Cousins Lane and All Hallows Lane Thames Street and the river. And it covered about 500 square meters, so 1.3 acres, so quite a sizable area, which appeared in such a way as a compound with gates and which contained dwellings, tavern, chapel, uh, and so on. Especially after this uh, war between Hansa and uh, England uh, ended, so in 1474, that um, Estelias grew and became the largest settlement as we know it from uh, the 16th century uh, sources and depictions, uh, for instance, also the portraits by Hans Holbein of uh, steelyard merchants are really emblematic for Hanseatic city. Thank you. Um, Sheila, they're, not, they're still not quite a league, but they do make decisions, collective decisions. How did they arrive at doing that? Justina has already mentioned that they, they held diets, so meetings of a sort of Hansa parliament, which mostly met in Lübeck. But as an association of merchants from multiple cities, the Hansa had to operate through consensus. So formally, it held these diets, in usually in Lübeck, and everyone hung out together for three weeks and went drinking and so on. But I think that the behind-the-scenes diplomacy was also important. Both the merchants from different cities discussing things in the four main contours in London, Novgorod, 
Bruges and Bergen, but also some behind-the-scenes diplomacy by the Hanseatic towns with one another. Um, decisions could be quite strongly held because Lübeck was a very powerful city, but it was only one of perhaps 70 core Hansa towns, and there were another, there was a periphery of perhaps another 100 towns that were sometimes Hansa towns and sometimes not. So, the Hansa, the German Hansa could not act cohesively when the interests of the merchants of different cities diverged. And there were times when an embargo was declared and one or more Hanseatic cities or the merchants of those cities thought that it was not in their interest to comply with the embargo. And Bremen was a good example. And I think it was either threatened with what was called Verhansung, which meant being kicked out of the Hansa and ceasing to enjoy all of the Hansa privileges, or it was either kicked out or it was threatened with being kicked out. So when the interests of the merchants of different cities diverged, then the Hansa could not make very cohesive decisions. I think divisions in Hanseatic decision-making were often a blessing in disguise even for its own members, let alone for Northwest European trade, because it stopped some of these embargoes and some of these more coercive, more violent, more monopolistic decisions from being taken. So we shouldn't think, oh, non-cohesive decision-making was bad. It might actually have been good for trade. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Gail, can you give us some idea what effect this league, which wasn't really calling itself a league, but the effect they were having, were they just sweeping across Northern Europe as if they were a country, as if they were a fighting force, which indeed they were. There were indeed hundreds of ships, uh, really, um, ploughing these uh, these seas, because this is bulk uh, bulk cargo, right? Wood, uh, salt, uh, this requires, like, uh, big ships, lots of them, to satisfy all the needs. The economic effect, of course, was, uh, you mentioned the showing of force, although this was a peaceful fleet, say, if you take the Bay Fleet, loaded only with salt, no cannons, nothing, but still, it was a powerful show of force. This is uh, the fleet of uh, the Hansa, through wealth, through the size of their trade. There was also, of course, a massive impact of their trade, of the connectivity these ships created uh, across Northern Europe that led to the emergence of some sort, if you want, economic uh, integrated area. I hesitate to say free trade area because, as we heard already from both Sheila uh, and Justina, the Hanseatic merchants or these ad hoc coalition of Hansa cities were not always big uh, promoters of free trade, uh, but defended their monopolies. But nevertheless, they massively increased connectivity across northern Europe, changed patterns of consumption by bringing new goods to all sorts of places. 
they also had an impact in terms of uh, a certain standardization of legal standards and cultures, architecture, art. Uh, it was not only salt and timber and furs, but also ideas, artwork and so on that was traveling with or in the wake of these ships. Thank you. Justina, when they had these disputes between the cities and the merchants, can you just give us a specific example and how it were resolved? Yes, so cities between themselves or city governments could uh, have disputes about, well, not following agreements as uh, uh, which they have made. For instance, holding a staple market in Bruges for textiles that was uh, very often violated internally. There were uh, disputes about taxations, whether everyone paid up as they were supposed to, uh, whether they would participate in a war, to what extent collective liability could be uh, addressed or Preferably not. That was the whole point of the Hansa being a loose. So it's uh, almost like it's almost like a state of its own on the water, isn't it? It is. It is something as important as a state and as powerful as a state. And at the same time, when it fit them, they they were had totally different interests, and uh, so some of the members and they could move out in a sense of the Hansa. So that makes it really fascinating because it was so flexible and difficult to to grasp. And some of the conflicts were really uh, connected to specific merchants, for instance, escalated uh, debt conflicts or cases of shipwreck and uh, the question whose uh, property it was. But also really more human conflicts, you could say uh, inheritances uh, or uh, conflicts about property, because those people really moved around the area and not not only merchants, but also their families, sailors, craftsmen. The approach seems to be have been that conflict was a part of life, for instance. Is there a sense, any sense in which uh, the Hanjatic League was a trailblazer for free market economies, for instance? Sheila. I think that's a romantic view, but a wrong one. The Hansa, I, well, as Georg was saying, in many ways, it was the exact opposite of a free trade bloc right. like the EU. It usually sought to act as a protectionist cartel for its members. It tried to protect its members against disruptive competition, get cartel profits, keep rival merchants out. And the shocking thing is that it didn't even guarantee free trade among different Hanseatic So that's not that one on the head. No. Oh, I think so. Yeah, Georg, um, <laughs> over, over the last 200 years, the um, Hanseatic League began to fade away, decline, and eventually, as it were, almost disappear. Can you give us some idea of that process? Yes. I mean, it's a difficult question. Uh, questions about decline, fading away, uh, tend to be. Um, because on the one hand, you could say, well, did it fade away? Yes, as an ephemeral maybe not even ever real existing uh, coalition or league of cities, yes. But the cities themselves, they don't. And they do very well, uh, also in the later period. Hamburg, Bremen, Danzig especially, uh, they do quite well in the early modern period. And into the modern period, they uh, profit from these new opportunities of a radically uh, changed world. So what has changed? Uh, two main things. On the one hand, there's this massive expansion of European economies because of global expansions or uh, voyages of, of discovery, uh, a shift to the Atlantic, but also to the Far East. And that entails a change in trading organization as well. Uh, so we have now ships traveling directly from England uh, to India, for instance, uh, or the Far East or from, uh, from the Netherlands. 
as I said, Bremen, uh, Hamburg, Danzig do, do relatively well in this uh, new world. Others do not, because there's another thing happening in this period, and that's the rise of what you could call the modern territorial state, England, Netherlands, Sweden, who, on the one hand, eliminate the necessity for Hansas protecting each other traveling because traveling is now safer, but also they would not accept this sort of acting on behalf of the empire by Lübeck or any other city. Now you really had to go through the empire, and that was difficult because there were different interests. Upper Germany did not agree with what Lübeck wanted, and that weakened Lübeck and many other cities uh, considerably. So overall, massive growth. They do okay, but others do much better. Sheila, um, it's often portrayed as a standard bear for capitalism. Does that make any sense? The Hansa merchants were rich, but I don't think they were specially capitalistic. We've already talked about how they tried to erect barriers to entry and behave like a cartel. But they also, the Hanseatic merchants largely failed to adopt the pioneering early capitalist practices that were emerging elsewhere in the medieval Islamic world, in central and northern Italy, and even in southern Germany. Merchants were developing large companies with huge capital resources. They were developing new types of banks and financial instruments. They were using double-entry bookkeeping. They were understanding foreign exchange arbitrage. They were even developing putting-out systems to develop pre-factory industries. And Then from about 1500 onward, the Dutch and Flemish and English merchants were doing the same thing. These fragmented merchants and their firms were the real standard bearers of capitalism. And I think the Hansa kind of sat out this early capital, this development of early capitalistic practices. Sometimes the Hansa actually forbade its members to do this sort of thing. So it forbade businesses. Well, for instance, the Hansa forbade its members to engage in business associations with non-Hanseatic merchants Mm -hmm. um, or to use particular types of financial instrument for particular periods. But probably the more important thing was that the Hansa used its cartel privileges to shelter its members from competition so they could stay in business even though they didn't adopt early capitalist practices. So I think the Hansa merchants were very rich and you can see their beautiful mansions in North German cities even now. But I think it would be wrong to see them as capitalistic. There were proto-capitalists in medieval Europe and the Middle East, but the Hansa were not them. Gail, could you tell Lucas, did religion play a part in this? Because it seemed to play a part in almost everything else at the time. Yeah, religion did matter. Certainly before the Reformation, when you look at um, how these different Hansas institutionalize, um, it is around religious symbols, how earnestly there were religious feelings or spiritual feelings, that's not a question. But of course, the churches of the merchants play an important role and are often bigger than the church of the bishop, which shows the power of of the merchants, but also how they express their aspirations and their identity through churches, through uh, religion. And you're absolutely right. The Reformation was a major challenge. It did not obliterate uh, the Hansa, uh, if you want, uh, altogether or immediately, but it was driving a wedge, um, and I shall say somewhat, from what I can see, under 
explored or under-researched much sort of into the Hansa because Köln, for instance, remained Catholic and other Westphalian uh, towns, even Münster after an Anabaptist uh, interlude, while in the north and um, along the Baltic, so Lübeck, Hamburg, Bremen and so on and, and further uh, into the Baltic, um, embraced the Reformation. And so, uh, yes, there was this there was this divide. Uh, in a way, the Hansa lived with it uh, because the empire lived with uh, that divide as well. So they learned to, to accept it, but it did weaken the Hanseatic League as it did weaken the empire. Yes. Um, Justina, we're coming towards the end now, but there's still time to talk about the legacy. Uh, what was the legacy of, the, of the, that period of time? What, we have the physical evidence briefly alluded to, mm-hmm. the great buildings and so on. But did it have other legacies inside the uh, basic area of the Hansa, which is northeast, northwest Europe? Yes, so indeed, the, the physicality of it, the buildings, the brick architecture is still very visible and recognizable and also um, well, connecting those cities. So also the topography of layout of the cities. When you're in Lübeck and you travel to Tallinn, so Reval in the medieval period, you kind of recognize the same elements you feel at home. So this is something which is still there and which is very much used for tourism. Art, uh, Georg mentioned it briefly, the Hansa was also a art trading network. So uh, art produced in the Low Countries, in Northern Germany, altarpieces, sculptures and so on. They were brought to Scandinavia, really far north, or to the Eastern Baltic, and you can still admire them. And it it was also a kind of recognizable element back then, and it is now. I think also this idea that there are various ways of creating identities and identifications, so not only national and ethnic ones, this is something which is a kind of lasting legacy, so that there are various ways to to connect. And for instance, in 1980, the city of Zwolle in in the Netherlands kind of called into life, created a union of uh, cities uh, of the Hansa, a modern one. So there are almost 200 members uh, now, so almost like in the, in the Middle Ages. And there are yearly festivals, um, days where business stars are being forged, culture, tourism, medieval fairs and so on. So it's, it's really a kind of lived experience of, uh, of these connections, which don't refer to anything national in a sense, but to the urban medieval uh, culture. And we have recognizable names like the Lufthansa, so the, the, the flying company, the, the flights of um, uh, Germany, or universities of applied sciences, which bear this uh, name. They're bored in computer games about the Hansa, including the Hansa. And um, it kind of also lives on in, uh, as an inspiration for historical fiction. So there are uh, novels being written on the basis of our research, which is really exciting. And uh, I think we're waiting for a Netflix uh, series as well. <laughs> so shall we just go around the table and get your final thoughts on whether this was an enriching time in Europe, whether it was a held things up. Gail, would you, Gail, would you like to start with that one? Well, any period uh, is uh, enriching <laughs> in, in its own ways. And, and I would, uh, I personally would always be careful with sort of ideas of progress. So... Uh, that, you're careful of the idea of progress? Yes. 
um, in the sense that this is something we are sort of, well, we have to sort of struggle uh, with and, and tackle as historians, that our discipline, history as we practice it now in universities, as we teach it in schools, is very much sort of in the, in, in the service of an idea of progress from some sort of origins to the modern liberal state. And of course, there are elements that are, uh, that we can hardly um, uh, deny, such as there was massive economic growth over the last few hundred years, uh, and massive demographic growth. So in that sense, yes, there was uh, an important development, but I would agree with also in the Middle Ages and the Hanseatic merchants were involved. And I would agree with Sheila, however, that it was in a way more symptom than driver. The main driver was climate change fostering demographic growth. And this demographic growth fostered the need or sort of triggered the need for wood from uh, the Baltic, for grain from Pomerania and other places, for salt from the Atlantic coast. And the Hanseatic merchants, they did contribute something important. They made it happen. Right. They shift uh, this stuff around and, yes, contributed to this growth uh, dynamic. So in that sense, I would also say, uh, although agreeing with Sheila, yes, I wouldn't, well, it depends on how you define capitalism, doesn't it, whether you want to call it capitalistic or not. But yes, it's different uh, from, the dynamics are different from uh, the Netherlands uh, or from London around 1600. There is no stock exchange and so on. But for their time and the needs to ship around, to move these massive cargoes, they come, came up with good solutions. And because these solutions were so good and worked so well for such a long time, we might be a little bit more forgiving for them hanging on to them and not embracing something new that they were not sure it would work. So yes, this is conservatism. Conservatism that uh, is problematic maybe, Hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it? So we can now say it's problematic. Uh, but for them, it would have been foolish to easily embrace something new. And that's, it reminds me of the situation today, right? Things are changing. We are holding on uh, to what we are doing. It's, it's natural to do that. Justina, would you like to make your comments? What I think is really fascinating is this kind of create human creativity which you can spot in the sources connected to the Hanses. So not only Hansets but also all their partners and the, the locations and so on where it's going on. There's such a richness of sources which are left from these interactions that it's really a treasure trove which I will gladly and dive, uh, dive into. So it's a very, really, very nice framework to, to work with as a historian. As an economic historian, I think we learn a lot from the Hansa, as is shown by the fact that even just main, mainstream economists, let alone economic historians, are still trying to draw lessons for the medieval Hansa for modern developing economies. And I think the reason that we do that is that the Hansa was this protean, mollusk-like, crocodile-like organization, which brought together, if you like, two sides of economic activity. One side was the profit-seeking 
innovative entrepreneurial side. And I think the individual Hanseatic merchants often were incredibly clever, very, very entrepreneurial. They sought out new trade routes, as Georg was was pointing out. They devised new types of ship. They were doing all sorts of things that were really important for the medieval and early modern economy. But on the other hand, like many organizations, there's this tendency of entrenched producers to try to keep their profits to maybe cartelize a particular um, or monopolize a particular branch of the economy. And I think that tension between the entrepreneurial side of the Hansa and the more if you like, rent-seeking, extractive side trying to get state privileges is endlessly fascinating. And I think that's why economists and economic historians keep going back to it to try to understand what was going on within this crocodile-like organization. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Sheila Ogilvy. Thanks to Georg Christ and Justina Verbs-Mazevich and to our studio engineer, Duncan Hannant. Next week... The dozens of different chemicals we make in our bodies all the time to keep us going. That's hormones. That's what we've been talking about. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. Go around the table in reverse way. Georg, what would you like to say that you didn't have the opportunity to say? I might have chipped in when uh, Sheila uh, was talking about uh, the Hansetage and, and the principle of a sort of consensus, right? So that the, the Hansetage, they try to form a consensus. And I agree with that, but I think it's important to note that the Hansetage were in many ways were, uh, or very strongly a self-selecting happening. So you showed up uh, when you wanted to show up. It was very difficult to force people to show up. And they, they tried and they tried to have penalties for people not showing up and forcing them to send proper excuses and so on. But it was very difficult, as it is in, in many struggling societies today, to force people to attend. So, yes, it was a consensus that was formed. But that was, that was sort of the ingenuity or the brilliance of it. It was the consensus of the people who already had a consensus because these were the people or cities showing up. So that on, only because of that, things were possible. It would never have been possible to form a consensus among all uh, cities that could be considered belonging to the Hansa or having something to do with the Hansa to boycott Bruges or to uh, escalate uh, tensions with England into a almost military or uh, low-level military conflict. So that's something you could easily dismiss as, oh, yes, failed institutionalization. They did not make it into a proper state as they didn't make it into a proper capitalist economic system and so on. Or you could say, no, there's something brilliant about this, a very flexible system that enables people to switch in and switch out according to their needs and still keep it somehow together, although uh, cities do very, very different things. And a very cheap way of doing things because this lack of institutionalization means that they perform state-like services, if you want, for their members with an incredibly low overhead. Sheila, would you like to... Comment on what did you not have a chance or an opportunity to say that you would like to have said? I think a theme that came up again and again in our conversation was the theme of security of property and persons, because you can't have long distance trade across political borders unless you have some sort of security guarantees. And I think it's often argued that you that 
medieval trade and maybe early modern trade needed to have these quasi-monopolistic organizations like the German Hansa and individual merchant guilds in order to get that sort of commercial security. It's certainly the case that you need security. The question is, do you need to grant all of these other monopolistic privileges to these merchant groups along with it. And I think that's one of the open questions which economists and economic historians keep asking. I think drawing a balance sheet on the security effects of the German Hanse for international trade and just general political relationships in the medieval and early modern period is, is an important issue because on the one hand, the German Hansa got these security guarantees from rulers and towns. On the other, we've heard again and again over the last three quarters of an hour about all of the violence that the Hansa itself caused. And, you know, it it wasn't just the wars, although the Hansa both had internal wars inside itself. So in 1438-41, you got wars between the Holland merchants of the Hansa and the Vendish Hansa towns, 22 ships of neutral merchants were captured. So neutral third parties got harmed when the Hansa had its own internal civil wars. There were there was a lot of harm caused when the Hansa, you know, declared war against Spain, when King John II of Castile attacked the Hanseatic trading fleet in 1419. There were a lot of ships that were sunk. I think 40 vessels were sunk and their their cargoes were lost with them. So I think understanding the balance sheet that on the one hand, the German Hansa created security for its own members. On the other, it generated insecurity for outsiders and for neutral third parties. And I think sort of drawing a balance sheet between those two sides on the security front is something which we need to think about when we try to assess the legacy of the Hansa. Thank you. And Justina? Yes, I would like to expand a little bit on the on the steelyard and more the social side um, of it because we already have wonderful sources about uh, well the interactions and there we also have this kind of duplicity so that the, the closed system of it and uh, well partly not letting foreigners in non hansards uh, the English and so on but on the other, the other hand really close contacts with the English as neighbors direct neighbors who went to the same church, the All Hallows Church, the Hansards went to English taverns and they came to the tavern in the Steelyard. There was quite a lot of contact with women as well locally. So, for instance, in 1450, a Hanseatic merchant said, well, I fathered a child in, in London, but we're merchants, we're not angels. So they were quite aware of, I think, the various sides of life um, going on. And this was a place where really young people came. So we see it in the interesting bands, what they were not allowed to do in the Steelyard. So it was forbidden to fight, to play football, to climb trees and to gamble. So we get a, li- a, really, a little bit of a sense of <laughs> what were the fun sides of a stay in, uh, in London. It was a place to come, to learn commerce, to learn languages, to learn how to interact with others for better and for worse. Well, thank you all very much. Yeah, thanks so much. I'd like a cup of tea, yes, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. 30 years ago, Britain's farms were hit by an epidemic of an infectious brain disorder. They called it mad cow disease. I'm Lucy Proctor, and in The Cows Are Mad from BBC Radio 4, 
I tell the story of a very weird time in our history. The media started calling me the mad cow professor. Mad cow disease rampaged through Britain, first killing cows and then humans. And the thing is, after all this time, nobody knows for sure where mad cow disease originally came from. And the general feeling is that we will never know the answer. Subscribe to The Cows Are Mad on BBC Sounds. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.